0: Lord, we come to you today asking that you would reveal your word to us. Lord, you've given us your word. May it illuminate our steps. May we walk according to your ways. May we keep step with your spirit. May we follow and not try to get ahead of where you're going. May we not lag behind where you would like us to go. Lord, may our lives reflect Christ. May they reflect your word through your spirit that you've given us through various writers through many years. Lord, may we be a people who hear the calling that you've given us, who know that we are to be united in one common mission, that we would exalt your son, that we would lift up and proclaim his name to the nations. Lord, may that be true of our church and true of us individually. May that also be true of your missionaries that we've sent, that we've supported, that are sent out from thousands of churches to reach millions of people with the gospel who have not heard. Lord, how beautiful are the feet who take the good news to those who do not know it. Lord, as I look at your word this morning with your people, may it be your words for your church. Lord, your church who Christ died to redeem. Lord, you know my words are inadequate to sufficiently grasp, to explain. And to take hold of your word, Lord, so may it be supernaturally through your spirit to your people this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we begin a nine-part series looking at the church. And I read one verse that you've almost certainly read a dozen times. And it struck me differently when I read it a couple months ago. And that was the verse that God used over the last couple months to kind of plan and to plant the seed in my mind about what this series would look like. But I'm not going to start with that. I want to end with that. I want to start with God's wisdom being made evident through the things that God has done. And I want to start with creation and give you a couple examples of God's wisdom in his creation. The first is the aspen tree. The aspen tree can grow from a seed, and it can also grow by its roots and shooting up new aspen trees. The largest living organism ever to have been known by mankind is the aspen tree, because one seed has planted over 40,000 aspen trees which span 106 acres. Every single aspen tree in that stand is genetically identical to all of the other aspen trees in that stand. It's something like 13 million pounds of aspen trees. You're certainly familiar with the grizzly bear. The grizzly bear, a dangerous, aggressive bear, can eat 40 kilograms of food every single day. And if you're trying in your mind to think of how many pounds are in a kilogram or what's an equivalent of a kilogram in American units, 40 kilograms is 189 Big Macs every day. grizzly bear can eat 189 Big Macs every single day. And yet, for six months out of the year, it literally can just lay in a cave, and its heart rate drops to nine beats per minute. Nine beats per minute. You're also likely familiar with the monarch butterfly. We have monarch butterflies around here. And monarch butterflies migrate down to Mexico and then come back every year. It's about a 3,000-mile round trip. The problem is that monarch butterflies don't live long enough to make that trip and come back. It takes at least four generations of monarch butterflies to make the round trip to their winter breeding grounds. So the monarch butterfly will go a quarter of the way, lay eggs, that next one will turn into a butterfly, fly the rest of the way, lay eggs, the next one flies halfway back, lays eggs, the next one makes it back here. The butterfly that originally started and the butterfly that got back are generations apart and yet somehow the fourth generation of monarch knows where it's supposed to go. The sea turtles are similar. Sea turtles have some kind of magnetic cell in their head that has minerals that scientists guess aligns with the magnetic field of the earth. And a sea turtle can be born on a beach, live for many years, travel tens of thousands of miles, and then when it's time to reproduce, can come back to the same beach that it was born on years ago and lay eggs at the same place where it was once an egg. See, God has displayed his wisdom in creation to the extent that scientists are just trying to guess and put together plausible theories for how some of these things can happen. How a butterfly knows where to go and where to come back having never been there or never come back. And yet in all of this creation that wasn't enough to display God's wisdom. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the heavenly bodies displaying God's wisdom and creation being held together by his invisible hand not enough to display his glory. Mankind, God's creation has some in. Tangible soul, spirit that we can't actually, actively, scientifically measure. And yet we know there is more to us than just what we see. And that's not enough. All of creation displaying God's wisdom, and yet that was not enough. In the Old Testament, God called a people to himself. Out of all the nations, he picked a small nation, and said, you will be my people. And he picked the Israelites and said to them, follow me. And throughout the Old Testament, much like us, the Israelites disobeyed God. They walked away from God. And there were consequences. And they asked God to forgive them. And God forgave them when they repented. And they came back to God And God demonstrated his wisdom in forgiving a people over and over. He forgave his people when they turned to him. You see, God was providing a way for his people to be saved. And it was always his people. A homogenous group of people They were mono-ethnic. They were narrow in scope. They were not all the nations. They were God's chosen nation that he chose to redeem. And that wasn't enough. Today I want to start with a passage that shows that God's people that he chose that were of a single ethnic origin has now been expanded to continue to display God's wisdom. Because while God once had called the single group of people, God now calls the people who are multi-ethnic and multi in every way. They're multifaceted diverse. There's no longer a narrow scope of people. They're wide-ranging. And this is all that God might display his wisdom. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, God redeeming the Jews and the Gentiles, his chosen people, and now the people that are also being adopted into his family. Paul says this, that collective redemption is so that God's multi, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord that God's wisdom may now be made known through the church. God literally created the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, the earth as we know it, your body that we don't even understand how it all works. We have extra parts that we can just take out and we keep living. And that was not enough to display God's glory. So what God did is he brought together all of these people and then he said that his multifaceted wisdom might be displayed through these diverse groups of people. Multifaceted, as a church, we are multicolored, multilingual, multicultural, multinational, we're multiracial. God is no longer calling a single people group to himself. He's calling all men everywhere to call on his name and be saved, to be made part of this new church, to be part of the collective calling that is multifaceted. The word that Paul uses is only used here in the whole of the Bible. It's a it's two words that are put together. The second word kind of means like the facets on a diamond. Like you look at it and they're all similar in a way, but they're also distinct and different. The first word means kind of unending or eternally. And so you have this different, but forever different, infinitely different. And that's the word multifaceted that God has called different people that are different in every way together to be part of what he has then called the church. The church refers to all believers, from all lineages, all languages, and all locations. And together they are called the church, and collectively, the book of Ephesians says that God's wisdom may be made known through the church. And it's made known to the angels, to the demons, to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. God chose this collective nature of people to display his wisdom to the fallen angels, to the demons. The church stands in opposition to the dark and demonic forces by displaying God's wisdom. The wisdom displayed through the church shows the demons the error of their ways, walking away from God. The church shows the demons that Satan, in his attempt to overthrow and become like God, was foolish because God's eternal purpose, Paul says in Ephesians, is on display through the multicultural church. God chose the church to display his wisdom, his glory, his grace through the church to the angels, to the demons. Paul says that the angels long to look into things of salvation. That's something that they can't understand. The angels don't have the grace of God that we have. The people that God has called out and set apart to be sanctified for his purpose were not the angels. The angels wanted to be like God and Satan and them like him fell from God's grace. They're not offered the grace that we have. The angels can't comprehend the grace that God has given us. God displays that through his church. I can think of a lot of ways that would display God's wisdom better than me and you. But God values this in a unique way. God values the church collectively around the world, and God values this collective gathering of his people in a unique way. You know, when God speaks of the church, he does not speak of a people who come and sit in the same room once a week for an hour. God speaks of the church as people who have come together with one common purpose, being multifaceted in so many different ways, so many different cultures and personalities and languages and heights and life experiences, and they come together to put God's wisdom on display, that God knew from eternity past what he was doing. The church preaches to the angels and to the demons that God is all wise, and knows exactly what he is doing. Our church today that we are here with is no different than a church across town It speaks a different language and has seven people that sit together in a living room. It's no different from a church in Africa that doesn't have a building and they sit together under a tree in the morning because it's hot in the afternoon. It's no different from a church in China that meets in a house with the lights off and the window shades drawn so that nobody can see their little fragments of Bible that they have. The church of God is not a building. The church of God is a people that God has called to himself. My intention over these nine weeks is to show you how God has put his wisdom on display in the church. That God did not do these things on accident, they were not a byproduct of the gospel, but that God has specifically given the church a mission and a purpose, and he's laid it out throughout the New Testament. Paul says here in Ephesians, this is according to his eternal purpose. Accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, we're never going to be able to cover all that the church is, and nor will we be able to cover all that the church should do, but I want to give a big picture look at the church of God. Let's first look at Timothy. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is Paul's protege, the man that he's been discipling. Paul has given Timothy the instructions he needed to build the church. And this is one of the things that Paul tells Timothy. In chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, we'll start in 14. Paul says, I write these things to you, to Timothy, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed... I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Over the last couple weeks, Lupe Chavez has been at my house, and he's been doing some construction for us. And one day he came down out of the attic, and he comes over, and he's like, Hey, Brandon. Hey, Lupe. Do you know your roof is sagging? So I kind of had that response like, (laughs) what? (laughs) So I stared at him like waiting for the rest of the joke or something better than, no seriously, your roof is sagging. He's like, come here, I can show you. So we walked outside and he's like, you see right there? And I was like, oh, I do see right there. And you can see the tiles are just sagging. He said, in the attic, there's two by fours that hold up the roof. Those 2 by 4s are connected to a pillar that connects to a pillar, like a load-bearing wall, and so the roof, supported by the pillar, which is all supported by the foundation. You don't have a pillar. So we have a roof whose weight is just supporting itself and sagging. So, 30 years ago, when the roof was built, Lupi said they just didn't put those pillars in. For some reason, now it's starting to sag. Louie can fix it, of course, and he's going to fix it. And Loopy assures me that um, you know, both gravity and uh, his ability can be put at odds against one another, and he can put the pillar in to force gravity to no longer pull the roof down. But without the pillar, the roof is just under its own weight, and you know... You don't even want to ask Loopy what's the worst case scenario? Because one of those things you already kind of know, and it's more like, when do you think you can fix it? And he's like, the next couple weeks. I was like, okay. I feel safer now that you're like, you're not so worried about it. But what Paul's saying here in First Timothy chapter 3 is that God has given the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's Household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church did not create the truth. The church does not change the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation that elevates the truth and says, This is the truth. This isn't a preference. Like we like some of these truths or we don't like some of these truths. The church's job is to hold the truth and say, this is the truth of God. A church that changes it is not holding the truth of God. A church that skips parts of it is not holding the truth of God. The church's purpose, Paul says, is to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The truth of God and the truth of the scriptures is that God had a plan to redeem people. That plan was made manifest, Paul says in verse 16. That Jesus came, was made manifest, still being fully God and then coming to earth and being fully man. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's the truth that the church holds up and elevates for everyone to see there's no opinion there's no preference of what we like and what we don't like it's just the truth as it is and paul says the church is to hold up and be the pillar of truth the church tells the world that everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved church tells the world that there's one name given among men from God by which we must be saved the church is to be the one that holds the truth for people to see and God's wisdom is made evident when people come together and collectively become the church to hold that truth the church without The truth is just a moral social club. The church that changes the truth is no church at all. There are people that like certain things and don't like other things. They're just a club of people that also have morals. The church must have the truth of God on display. So if the church is not this building, the church is not where we meet, but the church is when you and I and collectively we come together, the church is no greater or lesser than its members. So what Paul refers to as the church's goal, the church's purpose, the church's pillar and foundation being the truth, is the truth your pillar and your foundation? Is the truth of God the filter through which everything in your life runs? Should I do this or do that? Buy this or buy that? Go there or go that? Should I do what I'm going to do or say what I'm going to say? And is that rebuked or verified or accepted by the truth? For the church to hold up the truth and say, we are the pillar and foundation means that we individually hold the truth I want to encourage you this week, as you talk to people, everyone has needs. Everyone is broken. Most people don't like to admit it, but if someone shares with you something that is wrong, run it through the filter of what the Bible says, because a lot of times when someone talks, they'll tell you what's wrong. And their need is Jesus. If we're gonna hold the truth, then the truth will hold. And we tell people, your problems aren't financial, your problems aren't physical, your problems are spiritual. And only Jesus can meet those needs. So when you talk to people, be listening for how their physical, their worldly needs, filter through the Bible that you might be the beacon of truth that you might hold the truth for them to see. The church is not the building. The church is you and I collectively. And what Paul says in Ephesians is that we were once far off. We as most of us, non-Jewish people, were far off, that we were aliens and foreigners and exiles And God has made us close, God has brought us close, and God has adopted us into his family. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Back to the left a couple pages. Ephesians two, starting in verse 17. Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles being separated but then coming together and united in Christ so they're no longer distinct peoples but they are one because of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 17, he, Jesus, came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The peace that Jesus proclaimed, the peace that Jesus offered, was peace with God. That God was perfect and we are imperfect. And through Jesus himself, he proclaimed that there's a way to have peace with God. That God reconciled, made our accounts even, that we don't have a debt that we owe God because of our sin, that Jesus reconciled people that are far off, that's us, and people that were near, that's the Jews, and he's brought us together and preached peace. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So we both, the Jew and the Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father, the one same Holy Spirit for the Jews, for the Gentiles, that gives us access to the Father, Verse 19 talks about fellow citizens and members of God's household. Paul's kind of mixing these two metaphors of a house having family and a country having citizens. And ultimately what he's saying is that at the end that we are now members of God's household, that we have been adopted into a new family. And being adopted into God's household comes with benefits. You have a new inheritance You're no longer inheriting sin and death and eternal punishment because of your sin. Now you inherit heaven. God has offered through Christ that you can be part of his family. And as part of his family, we receive the inheritance that God promised. We also receive a new identity. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin, we were destined to death because of our sin. But now in Christ, we are a child of God. Our new identity, because of God's adoption of us, is that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are children of God. We also receive a new family. The Bible talks about brothers and sisters. In God's household, being Christians, we have new family. And that's not just here. That's around the world, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we've never met, that we couldn't understand if we did meet them, and that one day we will meet because of our inheritance in heaven. Being adopted into God's household also gives us the opportunity that Paul says in 18. Through the Holy Spirit, we can go to God the Father directly in prayer. There's no need to come and tell me your sins or your prayer, you can go directly to God the Father, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we should pray for one another. I don't mean, like, to. you know what I mean, though. We can go. Paul says we have access to God the Father directly. When Paul was talking about citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, in verse 19, it made me think, and I was thinking about what it meant to be a citizen. You know, that we have rules and laws that we're part of a country. We have to, to some extent, do what the country says. And then I thought about dual citizenship. People that are citizens of one country and citizens of another country. And then my mind couldn't really reconcile those things because I was thinking, okay, what if country A and country B, who you are a citizen of both of them, go to war? And then they're both like, we're having a draft. And then to country A, you're like, well, I'm not your citizen. And country B, you're like, well, I'm not your citizen. What happens if two countries you hold citizenship in disagree about something fundamental? Our citizens will never do this, but our citizens will always do that. How can dual citizenship work if the countries are no longer in friendly cooperation with each other? And I'm sure there's a, political or legal way, but in my mind, I can't really reconcile those things. And it made me think what Paul's talking about is we're now fellow citizens, that we used to have our citizenship elsewhere, but now we are members of God's household. Now we have a new citizenship that we've left our old passport behind, and we have joined God to be part of his citizen. To be in God's household, you can't maintain dual citizenship. It's not possible to be a citizen of the world and to be a citizen of God. It's black, it's white. It's darkness, it's light. When there's darkness and you turn on a light, the darkness is gone. What do darkness and light have in common? When we come to Christ, we leave our old citizenship behind. James 4.4 says it this way. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. Those two things are in direct contrast with one another. Those two countries have never been friendly with each other. There are no good terms between the world and between God. You either are a citizen of the world or you are a citizen of God. There's no dual citizenship when it comes to God's kingdom. And as new citizens, there's also an expectation of allegiance you're expected that you will pledge your allegiance in this new country. So to be part of God's household, to be part of God's country, to be a citizen of God, it's expected that God has rules. God has ways. God's ha- God has ways that we ought to live. I was thinking of the, uh, maybe an exaggeration, but, but quite possibly the greatest lie of our generation is yes, I have read and agreed to these terms and conditions. <laughs> right, you, you go and you sign up, like it's like name, email address, phone number, you check the box, nobody clicks the link that says read the terms and conditions. We all just check the box that says yes, I agree to and I've read the terms and conditions, then we move on with our life because even if we read it, we're not gonna understand it anyways. You could pay thousands of dollars to your attorney and he's going to say, don't sign that. Like, But I want an account. Check. To be part of God's kingdom, to be a citizen of God, God doesn't expect us just to check the box and move on. God says, have you read the terms and conditions? There are expectations. And some people don't want that. Some people say, my citizenship with the world, the way the world lives, the way the world works, the things I get to do, I'd rather have that than have what God offers. It's good in the season. It's good for a moment. But you can't have both. You have to pledge your allegiance to God. And when you do that, you turn in your old passport and you renounce your old way of living you walk away from your former life, the way you talked, the people that you talked with, the things you did and said, that's all part of the old citizenship. You can't have both. And when you go from the old way to the new way, the old citizen to the new citizen, sometimes like going to a new country, there's a new language. And if you remember the first time you heard some of the language of Christianity, sometimes it sounds weird. It sounds different. Remember that the blood of Christ cleanses us. Those two things don't naturally go together, that blood provides cleansing. You also remember that by Jesus' stripes, by his wounds, we are healed through the punishment, physically, through his death, we are healed spiritually. Probably one of my favorite Second Corinthians says, and he, talking about Jesus, died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them. So Jesus died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died. It's strange language that we only learn and understand through the wisdom of God given to us in his word. The church must be a pillar of truth that says, yes, those things don't make sense on the surface, but in the context of what the Bible is saying, they make perfect sense. That Christ came and he died that you might have life. By his stripes, we are healed. Because of his sacrifice, we have been given new life. And if we have new life, it should not be just spent living for ourselves. It should be spent for the one who has given us that new life. In Ephesians 2, Paul finishes this thought in verses 21 and 22 as progression, as a process. He says, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Being a Christian is a process. In verse 20, Paul says that, that the church, that this, these new members are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Salvation is taught through the apostles and the prophets. That's a past tense, that's done. But then we come to it and we are growing into and we are being built into the process of becoming more like Jesus And my question is, where are the areas that we held old citizenship that we don't want to let go of? It's easy in the big things. It's easy in the visible things when we're with each other. But where do we still desire to hold citizenship with the world? I think for a lot of people, it's one of two things. Number one, it's friendships or relationships with people that have influence over us. So either some kind of romantic relationship or a close friendship that it's hard to give up and allowing those people to have continued influence over us. But their passport is still of the world. Paul says that you are no longer but you are now citizens of God's household. So if you're likely to go back to that old friend who negatively influences you, you're part of God's household. Find God's household, God's people who can encourage you to help you. You don't have to write that person off and hope they die, but you can spend time with people who influence you for the Lord. Pray for them, seek their salvation, but don't let them have influence over you. You're being built into a temple in the Lord. And the second way is secret things. The secret sins, the things that we like to stay in the dark. In the dark, they're safe and they're hidden and nobody knows about them. We don't want to bring them to light because they're shameful and they're embarrassing. And we want them to stay hidden. But God is not a God of darkness. He's a God of light. With those things, you have to expose them. You have to rid your life of all the old things that pull you back to the old citizenship, that pull you back to the old way of living. Good ways to do that are find someone that you can trust in the church, God's members, people of God's household. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them to keep you accountable, to meet regularly with God's people and seek to grow together in those things. Being part of God's household requires those new choices. Being part of God's household also requires that we recognize that we are a work in progress. God is patient, he's slow to anger, he knows that you're gonna do the wrong thing before you even do it. So recognizing that God does not disown and hate me every time I do something wrong. So I wanna ask you two questions in that that idea. The first is, do you think that God will love you more and you will please God more if you obey him? Will God be more happy if you obey him? Will God be more pleased or more satisfied if you obey him? Second question, If you do the opposite, and if you fail, will God be disappointed? And will God want to leave you? So can through your obedience, you make God more happy and more sad, whether you obey him or disobey him? And the answer is no. Your obedience to God does not please him more. God is fully pleased in himself. God needs nothing else for him to be fully pleased and fully satisfied. And God also is not distraught and saddened when we don't obey because God is faithful. God's faithfulness is not because of our faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his nature, it's his quality. He is faithful, he is pleased in himself and he's loving. God knows that you are growing into a holy temple in the Lord, that you are being built together for God's dwelling, his spirit. Our obedience and disobedience does not cause God to come and walk away from us or to pat us on the back and tell us he's really proud of us, because God is holy and wise. And God's wisdom is displayed in the way that he has made the church to come together, to grow together into a holy people that are set apart from him. And knowing that, we are to live with a new hope. God has called us as his people to have a hope that's not on earth, to have a hope that transcends all the things that we deal with on earth. Our former way of living, the old citizenship, had a hope of tomorrow, that this day will be a good day. And if it wasn't, there's disappointment, but tomorrow will be a good day, and there's always the need to continue to strive and to acquire. But the hope that we have in Christ is an eternal hope, that whether today is good or bad, or tomorrow is good or bad, that the future that God has promised will always be better than the lives that we live now. I told you that the, uh, the Aspen Grove is genetically identical that aspen grove that's the the largest one ever known to exist is called pando, which is a Latin word that means I spread. They're not very creative, but it's very accurate that this tree has spread. And it's much like discipleship, where we've been given the truth of God, and we take it and we tell somebody, and their life starts to sprout And their life, now being fellow citizens with the saints and members of one household, God's household, grows into a holy temple and it's being built together into a holy temple. The picture is the same in our lives that as we are being built together as God's household, that we would also reach out and make disciples that the church might spread. So my challenge is, There are people in your life that still have old citizenship, that are still walking in their old ways of living. And like a doctor who can cure a rare disease, you have the answer. You have the hope that they don't have. You have the name and number of the doctor that can heal them from their sin. So my encouragement this week is to hear those people that are talking and then tell them that you know a way that they can be healed. Now the final the final thing that I want to end with today is actually, like I said, the beginning. It's First Corinthians chapter one. If you read all of Paul's letters, take the introduction of all of them, they're all very similar. And when I read this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it was different for me all of a sudden. Like I read it and I was like, has that always been here? You know, like you want to go check a different version of your Bible? Like, is that new or is that? So I read it and it felt like I was reading it for the first time. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 says, To the church of God at Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Notice that every single way that Paul's describing the church of God at Corinth is a who and not a what. It's a who and not a where. Let's read it again. To the church of God at Corinth to those people sanctified in Christ Jesus, called people as saints, with all those people in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their people, Lord, and ours. But he starts with to the church of God at Corinth and then describes the people because the church of God at Corinth was a meeting of the people. The church of God at Corinth was not the building. The church of God at Corinth was not a specific person. The church of God at Corinth were people who were sanctified. It means to be set apart. That they were one way, but God has called them and made them different. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. This is God's call on their life. That this is a call that's both effective and it's one for salvation. That God has called these people out as saints. And they are in every place who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is not a collective group that's for this place and only this place. But it's for every place. That the church of God at Corinth is one place But the sanctifying, calling, meeting together of the church is in every place and they have the same Lord, both their Lord and ours. That's what the church of God is, to the church of God. The important thing is that when we come together, we are a church. But when a club gets together, they're a club. When a sports team gets together, they're a team. When people gather, they become something. And when we gather, we become a church, but not just a church. We become the church of God. Nobody can replicate that because we have, as Ephesians 4 says, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The church of God happened to meet at Corinth. The church of God happens to meet in Madeira. The church of God is not... Us and only us, but it's a universal church that is for all who have been sanctified by Christ, called as saints, repented of their sins, put their hope in Christ. That is what the church is. When the church comes together, we are the church. Individually, we can be Christians. If you go home, you're a Christian, you're not the church. You can be a Christian at home, but you can't be the church alone. The church is only when God's people come together and they meet together for God's purpose to fulfill God's mission for the church. And you can do the same thing that I can do and look around and know that the people in this room would not be friends would not have a lot in common. We come from different backgrounds and live in different places. Between all of us, there's not one thing that we all would have in common. That's what makes the church unique. In a club, in a sports team, in an activity, they come around the one thing that they have in common, their love for knitting, bowling, service projects. When we come together, the church becomes the church because the church has one Lord, one calling, one purpose. The church is the church because of the one thing that we have in common. And what we have in common is more important than the differences that separate us what we have in common is more important than the differences that separate us. Because we may be different colors, but one church. Different cities, but one church. Different languages, but one church. Different nationalities, different heights, different life experiences, different enjoyments, different families. We can be different in every way, but when we come together, we are the church because the church is of God, and I'll never read that verse the same again, the church of God at Corinth. God has displayed his wisdom by taking people that are unique and diverse and distinct and different in every way and saying, I can make them all the same in Christ. God's wisdom has been made evident by the church. Like a orchestra conductor, God brings out the winds, a tuba, and a clarinet, and he brings the whole church together in musical harmony, being different in every way, but coming together for the purpose of glorifying God, for the purpose of making disciples, for the purpose of growing and edifying one another. When the church is living and acting as it should, people take notice. They look at us and we're different. They look at us and we have nothing in common. And they see the one thing that we do have in common is what makes us the church. And over the next eight weeks, that's what I want to look at. What are those specific things that make the church the church? What are those distinct things that we look at and say, we are a church because of God's wisdom? How is God's wisdom on display in these different parts of the church that make us a unique creation of God to display his wisdom? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as you would continue to use your word to grow us, to build us into a people who honor you, whose lives reflect your glory, your calling. Lord, would you make us unified in your purpose? Lord, give us a a hope that is eternal. Give us a purpose that is missional. Give us a love that is for one another. And Lord, may our church, and the church around the world. Display your wisdom to everyone who sees it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.